Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Honestly Speaking podcast. Today we got Farb and Eddie. No gym today. He'll be back next week. But in the booth as a guest, we got Ife Ek. We cover a lot of things from Blackout Tuesday, rioting versus rebelling, and the language around that. Talk about the Southern strategy and Trump's chances for 2020's election. So kick back and enjoy. We had her on this fall and talked about all sorts of amazing things. At the time, me and Ed were following on her lead and we were on Team Warren. Um, Unfortunately, things have not gone the way we wanted and it would have been amazing to have someone uh, who was actually had ideas in the room. But I want to jump into today. And the big thing today was the blackout. And I saw you tweet, am I watching a fire fest moment with this movement? And I think similar to probably what happened with you, I wanted to laugh for a quick second and then I wanted to cry and then I wanted to get really angry because to your point, this was a huge primary day in so many different states and we somehow are, (laughs) by blacking ourselves out, we're suppressing our vote. So anyway, I will let you jump into this because it's such a deeper thing, but what... Where did this come from? I, I don't even, I, I've heard it was the music industry and Ed working at Genius said he mm-hmm. heard it first from the music industry, but where, where did mm-hmm. you hear it first? I first also heard about this like Blackout Tuesday and actually I didn't even necessarily hear about it as Blackout Tuesday. It started off as like a completely different uh, hashtag a week ago, but to be honest with you, it came in ear, one ear, went out the other. There are several causes that are going on right now, right? Like, and this this seemed like one that the music industry and especially those behind the scenes were trying to be a part of, from what I understand, to uh, Black women from Atlanta were really just trying to like elevate, you know, people in the arts during this time. And something happened. I, I, heard, I remember the, the date, January 2nd, but I also have been working with um, some civic organizations behind the scenes on a lot of things related to voting. So, excuse me, June 2nd. So I knew June 2nd meant something. Fast forward to the evening of June 1st, uh, which shout out to, you know, all of our LGBTQ family, right? Which should have been at the celebratory launch. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as the anniversary of the two-day Tulsa, you know, Tulsa massacre. And right. late, in, technically early June 2nd, I get a call that's, or a text message that's like, hey, do you know anything about this? And at that time, it was, had already changed to like Blackout Tuesday. And I, and I wasn't sure if that was the name of the original campaign, but I knew that the date was the same, or the date was similar. And I said, I don't know who's behind it, but I think that if people feel like they want to be in solidarity, no problem to it. Not thinking about it too deeply and not necessarily thinking about it as like what complications could come up. Fast forward, when we all wake up, we see the unintended consequences of a campaign that also is rightfully so aligning itself with the leading campaign message, which is Black Lives Matter. And but what it did was it brought upon more than just behind the scenes industry folks. It literally brought in influencers and entertainers and celebrities, which in my opinion is probably what made the rapid turning of people's profile black mm-hmm. um, quicker in an unprecedented fa- fashion. I wrongfully or rightfully, or just, just looking at the momentums called it the, the like social media fire festival of 2020. I was just like, <laughs> what the heck is going on? Many of us have become accustomed to clicking on that hashtag to check on things that were going on throughout the country, updates on cities, especially as over 30 cities had curfews last night. And mm-hmm. with all the events that had happened with Trump basically declaring war, which we'll talk about, I guess, a little later on, you know, cities and saying that like urging this law and order fascist message that was out there it was actually really important to see how people had fared through the night especially as protests have been occurring since um friday and you couldn't find anything and that that was scary so i literally yelled for about 
what felt like two hours, but like 30 minutes. And I think a lot of people were scrambling about, and both recognizing the impact of Black Lives Matter as a movement, right? That despite what people have said about Black Lives Matter and despite what people think or shoulda, coulda, woulda of Black Lives Matter, it is probably undeniably the strongest hashtag in our movement history period. And the genius of the creation of it is that it doesn't belong to any one era. It is unfortunately brought in when we lose life, but it is also there when we're trying to celebrate and and have joy, which is what I think was the intent. But it did have a suppression of information around police brutality and updates on protests. And it also, as you mentioned, did take away from what could have been really peak messaging for the eight states that had primaries leading into 2020, which today was actually the biggest election primary day with the rescheduling of shit around coronavirus before our major 2020, you know, Tuesday, Super Tuesday election. So in a weird ironic way, while people were taking this blackout day to both amplify artists, but also some people just took it as a time to tune out from social media. I am all for care. I'm all for people taking care of themselves. I suggest that we stay the fuck away from Tuesdays because Tuesdays are election days and those are not the days that we should be doing actions. And <laughs> that's ultimately, that's what happened. Yeah. It's interesting that, yeah, that just needs to be in the handbook. Like just Tuesdays can't be the thing. Like, Yeah. I think that it, it to, to Farb's point, I think it started out as a music thing. I think it started out as in all the ways we call upon private industry for, for activism, whatever, I think it was incumbent upon the media uh, industry in terms of music and, and cultural publications. You know, Genius wasn't there as well, and Genius participated, because I think those companies disproportionately profit and benefit from Black culture specifically. So I think that there was this part of, of American industry that has a, has a particular relationship with Black people and culture and so forth need to sort of the show must be paused or whatever right like no more content on tuesday and i think that that whatever that even makes, though they're not you know, pledging money to, though right so that so that's another thing i think you know it, some of them pledge money or some are, or, or whatever but like that was sort of the main thing but i think that that coincided with this just huge upswell in social media about Who's an ally? Show your allyship. Da 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 da. You shut the fuck up. You should be speaking. You should. So it it just happened in the middle of that, and I think it, you know, it, it sort of ride rode that wave, and then it just sort of spread like gas fire, and then everybody started doing it, and it was just like a all information blackout. To but to you know to Ify's point is is not good for a very important Tuesday. So I, I think it those things overlapped, and it just kind of got out of hand, maybe. But I don't know. That's kind of how I see it. Ify, I want to ask you something, and it kind of plays on something Ed just talked about, and we were t- me and him were chatting about it a little bit earlier, but what corporations' role is in being an ally, right? And I have to imagine that I know I was approached by a few corporate comps people of what they should be doing. I have to imagine you were as well. Everyone's scrambling like where they go into this. Do you actually think that they should be putting a voice or, I mean, it's an interesting thing because of course we want, they have such a big voice. We want our brand standing for something. I think overall there's a lot of positives, but when did it become something that actually needed to be mandatory within this like capitalist system? Like whether you're for or against capitalism, it, this is where we are. So I'm just kind of curious, how do you feel about that allyship connection to corporations? So there was a word, there's like three points that I want to quickly point out. So first of all, fuck allyship. So that's just my <laughs> Yo, I'm the same. Yo, that's iffy. I'm, I'm, I'm team that. Yo, okay. Sorry to interrupt you. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> but I do think that there's a word that I don't want to abandon just yet. And that word is solidarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may have seen my tweet, um, and I'm proud to share with individuals what our mm-hmm. um, didn't even want to make up. But the definition of solidarity is unity or agreement of feeling or action, especially among individuals with a common interest, mutual mm-hmm. support within a group. Pause, right? We have cheapened words. I'm not going to say that there's no impact on social media. I'm not going to say that there, there aren't times when the virality of things have literally led to changes in, in laws, in, in actions. I mean, look what happened in Louisville, right? The chief of police was fired, 
right? So, uh, so, but again, the chief of police was fired because there were eyes on Louisville and cities throughout the country. So imagine, we don't know what we could have made, what impact we could have made today because information was suppressed, right? But I think that there is a, a responsibility that you take because of the mutual interest of basically do no harm, right? My thing to organizations and companies is, However you interject yourself, it is not for me to literally police you and how you interject yourself, but do no fucking harm. So if you're doing a campaign, make sure that at best, at peak, you would actually engage with organizers, cons you know, consult with people that actually know what's going on. Just get some insight. And for the record, as much as people are like, oh, shit happens, information kind of like got lost or things got lost in translation for the last five to six years there are a lot of people within those movement spaces and platforms including netflix spotify all of those spaces that have contacts of people that are within the movement so it actually could have been a discussion with even one mm -hmm. or two people to be like can you give some insights as to like who else we should consult it does this day make sense will we cause confusion when you put a black square and use the word black, where the most prominent hashtag is Black Lives Matter, will there be confusion? Like that could have actually been discussed in a, like a short amount of time. But aside from that, on the quote unquote corporate side, so I, I spoke to, and I'm not gonna, it's not limited to corporate, it's nonprofits, anybody who has a brand. The one mm. thing about solidarity is solidarity is not about your fucking brand. It also right. wasn't, in my opinion, and everybody can feel differently because I, I want to respect what Eddie mentioned, which is like this muscling of like that's happening in non-black spaces of like you have to show your flag, you have to show that you're down. And this right. competition within micro industries, right? That if you don't say something, then that means you're on the opposing side. And that's how right. too. I actually don't feel that way. If you don't know what the fuck to say and don't know how you're going to make impact, don't say shit. Like, mm -hmm, exactly. like at the end of the day, your statement is still just that. You're not putting yeah. on those words. You're not protecting lives. So if it's just about your brand, then it's actually harming the movement because by saying you're in solidarity, that means that you actually stand for the defunding of police in communities. That means that you actually stand for leadership that is representative of the communities. That means that you actually stand for, on a capitalism basis, you understand how capitalism is actually also impacting people by race, right? Mm -hmm. And all the other intersections in between in these communities. And none of these companies stand for that shit. They're bottom <laughs> so, no. okay? And then it's like, oh, we need to create space for our, right. our colleagues. And, 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 and to be clear, I have heard from people that have felt like they were heard when their boss had reached out to them or reached or, sure. or their right. system for individuals of color, black people specifically yeah. in their workplace. That also doesn't necessarily need to be announced. That could have been something that just should happen in general. Right. <laughs> it should happen just when people are killed getting a solidarity in a workplace looks like i don't know fucking checking karens in the workplace right fucking checking male patriarchy and making right. sure that they're not the ones making all the decisions at the top making sure that we're not only celebrating lgbtq individuals during pride month like right. making sure that we don't cancel brianna taylor's name which still is being suppressed even with all these motherfuckers that say they stand for us and tony mcdade and nina pop like there is so much that I wish people would just like take the moment to not try to be first and like yeah. actually be on the right side and also recognize that there is a narrative that they can hold that is authentic to their brand that doesn't necessarily use words like solidarity because they're not, period. Right. Well, yeah. I think it's because so many people are more afraid of being labeled a racist than actually standing for something. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, you know. Like if we do, if you don't say shit, we actually don't see you. Yeah, yeah. totally. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, and then you just see this like Martin Luther King quote over and over again. Like all or who I don't know who you attribute to. Everybody attributes everything Martin Luther King, but like for you know for in order for evil to triumph, good people have to stay silent. Whatever that thing is, which, which makes people stand up and just start flailing and being like, I gotta say, you know, I gotta be a part of the the thing even though it's, it, it is not always well-constructed. You know, I think that that sort of rush and, and just sort of misunderstanding of 
number one, taking Martin Luther King out of context, like just you, everybody always does and every, everything they attribute to him outside of context, but also just misunderstanding, like what is constructive and what is important. You know, I think, you know, I, I liken the companies that benefit directly from black culture as a black, I don't say, Hey, listen, here's a day without black culture. Like here's a day without a black product that, you know, as a company that we can put out, I, I, you know, I would liken it to, to maybe, uh, I remember, I don't remember what year it was, but it was a part of the women's movement and every woman just took a day off from work or they, they not a day off, like they were chilling, but like it was a protest to not show up to work and say, okay, here's, here's what it feels like when you don't have women in the workplace. You know, and that was like sort of a real organized, really direct, effective thing, you know, well-constructed versus just flailing around and virtue signaling just for the hell of it so that you don't seem like you're racist is not good. Blackout. Tuesday. So again, there was another hashtag that I heard this was connected to, which was called like Amplified Melanated Voices. Um, I I did not see that at all. Yeah. So that apparently was also connected. I think a lot of things got lost in translation, but Mm. like that was also supposed to be what was supposed to be, what was supposed to be elevated, which was elevating Black and I believe primarily women voices during this time as an opportunity to not only make this moment to be just purely about protest and destruction and even like chastising protesters and the constant struggle that we have of being seen as like the looters, the rioters, instead of people that are rebelling. Oh, let's get into that. Let's get into that. That, uh, wait, we But very quickly, I think that what the missed opportunity, to your point about impact, nobody's questioning intent, right? But right. Go to Hell is full of good intentions. So I don't, I, when I do equity trainings, I don't give a fuck about your intent. It's literally about your impact. And the great thing about equity is whatever you think is the most equitable, there's always something that's more equitable, right? So I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with Blackout Tuesday and everybody removing right. themselves for a day. But I will say that for what Black communities need, and especially dealing with COVID, what this has done for Black entrepreneurs and creatives that are trying to rise, I would have actually it been a Blackout or a Black in for people to tune in to Black artists that they would never even have the opportunity but for a TI to do Blackout Tuesday hashtag iffy or Blackout Tuesday hash out Eddie. Like there could have actually been a whole industry that was literally birthed off of that hashtag and it could still be done because influencers are influencers. So I think I think it's okay to say things didn't work. Black people, especially black right. activists and black well-intentioned people do not have to be right all the time. So it was a fucking snafu, fire festival over. We got <laughs> sandwich and our you know lettuce and our tomato and we recognize that shit could be better people can still turn this around and have this be about amplifying those that we are the least likely to be in the industry industries and have these platforms but i just so i just wanted to make sure that we just like don't lose the day and and myself and a lot of other people were also very committed to like recognizing that like the beauty of being black and being free and liberated is that you also have the choice to not necessarily participate. So I chose not to, my way of blacking out was letting people know that there were elections today and advising people to reach out to their friends, to tune in to what are very complicated voting accessibility issues in light of COVID. And we have some major areas, including DC and Philly and Maryland that have really been impacted disproportionately as a result of COVID that also have not necessarily gotten the information that they needed to be honest to vote. So I was more concerned that we were suppressing some really, really valuable information for like our family in these places. Yeah, that's good clarification for sure. Well, I I think we got to get into it a little bit. I mean, whether it's talking riot, maybe we should start with the riot versus rebellion versus protest before we just jump straight into protest versus looting. Right. Let's disentangle uh, all of those things. They're, they're I think we got to disentangle a little bit. You know, I know some of our listeners are deep down the well with us already on all these things, but why don't we maybe start a little bit there? Because, you know, and, and this conversation has been going on for forever, but obviously in the, in the past year started with, you know, the Baltimore riots, right? And the riots in Ferguson. Of course, if you go to Baltimore and, and tell someone it was the riots, they'll smack you across the face and make sure you know that it was the uprising. Um, And it's the same thing with what's happening right now, right? That this is a a rebellion, right? This is an uprising. This is, this is fighting injustice, but where, I I wonder if either of you know, because I personally don't where, is there some sort of historical context to the word riot? And obviously 
yesterday was the 99th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre, and they call it the riots there too. So, I mean, this has been going on for forever, but is there something deeper to this word more insidious that I'm missing? Within this, or is it just a way to kind of like whitewash, if you will, what's happening? Right. I hadn't like literally just targeted that word and its actual history, but it is, it's my thinking that, you know, you go back to 1919 and Red Summer, and I think using the word riot aims to draw an equivalence between, you know, these, like Tulsa, you'll say it's a riot to sort of draw equivalence between the two sides and say, oh, no, black people and white people were, were doing it, rather than like a pogrom, like a, an actual form of terror and destroying property. It is language used to obscure. So I, I would say that that's probably the intent of from the media using it and bringing the news to folks about what happened to try to draw this equivalency to purposefully obscure what's happening. Say, nah, they both sides were doing it. Both sides, very fine people on both sides were sort of the opposite. Both sides are kind of doing it equally rather than one is literally preying on, on the other to, to sort of destroy life as they fundamentally know it. Right. So I think I would say that's my intuition around it, but you know, Issy, what, what do you think? So I think, I think you're right. And I think that part of it is the loaded nature of the word riot. Obviously there's a lot of sociologists that have studied the, what primes in our mind when we use certain words and riot is mm. one of the words that primes things like recklessness, primes things like disorganized, primes things Crimin like criminology. Yeah. things like thugs and therefore mm -hmm. the consequence of riots is that it's a disturbance that must be quelled right mm -hmm. we gotta we gotta stop the riots and it's just so out of control ironically we also have leaders like martin luther king which i think that quote was used quite he's been overused but there's a lot about him that has not been used as much that i think even white communities are recognizing they probably need to add to their little quote book which is when he said a riot is the language of the unheard right right so right. Also, right now, this kind of ambiguity around the word riot, being that it is, it has been used by somebody that in many ways people feel yeah. comfortable with an individual like Martin Luther King. That being said, I think what sociologists are trying to continue the, I guess, the conversation around is words always matter. And therefore, when are words afforded to certain communities and for what reason? So it's not just the fact that we're using the word riot, but it's A, because it does have a response that comes literally from law enforcement. And also because it makes it seem like it stems from nothing or something really trivial or small. And that is problematic. A rebellion automatically by definition means that there is an opposing force that you a don't agree with and in this case there's a right that you're fighting for right that is the way our minds code rebellions and so the first time i heard rebellion and i was corrected was when i was training organizations in detroit and in flint and i had a whole slide about the detroit riots and i called it the detroit riots and every mm -hmm. single person regardless of race racial or ethnic background at the same time said rebellion yeah. Like, Whoa. Okay. Like there was a certainty from the community that we do not reference it as the Detroit riots, regardless of what Wikipedia says and regardless yeah. of what you're in your own school place. And so for me, it mattered more that the people that were there identified what their struggle was. So in some places it may be a protest or a riot, but when people mm. inform you as to what they want it to be, then I think we have to, um, we have to honor that. But in general, I think for people, regardless, like for onlookers, it's really important to put the best foot forward of the people that you right. say you stand behind. So I, I feel like if it's not rebellion, at the very least, call it protest. But we have to move away from riot because of this like opposing law and order bullshit that's coming right. from the administration. Right, because the you know the police they call the, the the stuff they call it riot gear. Get your riot gear right, and I think also, and that made me think of another thing. Riot connotes unorganized, you know, almost sort of this inscrutable need to break things, you know, this animalistic thing versus rebellion is actually organized. It's logical destruction. And that's one of the things that I wanted to distinguish rebellion from, from uh, probably protest, if I may, and, and, and riot, you know. And, and when I think about rebellion and all this time, I just think in Kerner Report, Kerner Report, Kerner Commission, like, and, and you know, you talked about Detroit, 67, Watts, Watts in 65, um, Newark in 67, you know, and this is when LBJ, this is the, this is sort of the, the civil rights or the second reconstruction and, and 60 from 65 to 68, I think that's four summers. 
there were over 150 documented quote unquote riots or rather rebellions, mm -hmm. right? So this that is a crazier time than this, just to put that in perspective, to say people, because people are looking at this and saying, oh my God, it's a second civil war. First of all, you don't know anything about the first civil war, number one. And number two, it's things have been crazier than this. This is, you know, sort of welcome to the world. This is actually quite old and, and, and sort of the, you know, current events. But with the 60s, what spawned the, the Kerner Commission is that LBJ is like getting hit over the head, like, listen, you know, what, what is going on with all of this destruction? People are getting killed. People are looting, too. You know, I don't want to disregard looting as necessarily a bad thing. There's logic behind it, which I want to get into. But you have 65 with Watts, and then they do this sort of piddling report and saying, OK, it's the riffraff theory. There's our outside agitators starting it. It's not actually the people that live there. There's these troublemakers. And that's the case closed. Also, in that same year, you get Daniel Patrick Moynihan, right? The destruction of the black family, single mothers, jobs. You know, these, these are sort of Candace Owens talking points, right? So this is like, so saying like all of this happens because fathers don't have jobs and they're not there and they're single mothers and that's why they're acting up, you know, and it's, and it's sort of, it goes from there. Not good enough. The, the sort of the rebellions continue to happen. Martin Luther King gets assassinated. 68 is probably one of the worst years. So LBJ calls a commission of 11 people to do deep, deep social science, including like one black guy. But black nationalists are saying, nah, whatever, you're not gonna whitewash this. You're not gonna tell the truth. Well, fuck that. But they go out and they do deep, deep block to block analysis, reporting and interviewing people that participated. And they're starting to tell a different story. And they're saying, yes. So they come out with the big report that's actually quite popular. But I think the biggest lines out of it is, and I think folks have heard this before, is what white Americans have never fully understood. But what the Negro can never forget is that white society is deeply implicated in the ghetto. White institutions created it. White institutions maintain it and white society condones it. Our nation is moving toward two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. So they're saying, hey, participant, were you, do you live here? Were you actually breaking shit? Like, yeah, I lived here and I was breaking shit because of segregation, because of poverty, because of concentrated poverty and police practices that are completely wrong and punitive, right? The police things always set it off, but the rebellion is about a larger societal issue. It's about segregation and it's an economic statement. They're looting businesses, but they're also not looting Black-owned businesses because they're protected with sort of soul brother thing. So there's logic behind that, and I'm for looting in that context. Well, I want to reverse very quickly about rebellion. So a larger macro, almost existential question or philosophical question is who in America yeah. can actually be at war? So before right. we were even free, there were rebellions. There were slave right. rebellions. There you go. What part of this is the erasure of uprisings. So right. part of the reason why rebellion is correct is because there has always been resistance to being chained and there has always been resistance to racialized capitalism. There's always been resistance to unequal labor. There's always been right. And if you don't want to call it, I mean, if there's any other word other than rebellion that I would use, it would be resistance. That is resistance, actually right, exactly. And so the erasure of rebellions therefore makes people a get really nostalgic about points in Black history that make it seem like Black people were docile, and then all of a sudden they decided, yeah, to and then they had to be quelled by the law enforcement, and then they acted out 100 years later. Nah, <laughs> like there were some rebellions that were successful. There were some yeah. Black rebellions that are very close, even globally, that had to do with the creation of Haiti and other, yeah. you know nations. There were rebellions that were almost successful, but led to other forms of retaliation, which made it very even harder for the other uprisings to occur. But part of why, and this is such a tangent, but part of why I thought that Watchmen was so genius as a show was that it was a reminder of, yes, massacres that we don't teach people in schools that occurred. And massacre is the right word, because when you think yeah. of Massacre, you think of slaughtering, you think of looting, which we don't talk about, is that massacre was the intentional looting of a black town and right. killing of those individuals so that both their life and their property would not be owned to them. Right. And I, I think that for me, when I think that the original looting is the kidnapping and the misuse of bodies, right. let alone the seizure of people's property, the seizure of people's children, that is looting. So for me, yeah your building like literally fuck your building but also if you want to be technical that's our goddamn building like don't right. 
come to us about this is ours. Don't come to us about the destruction and definitely not when you're comparing it to life. So it's not that there isn't a value in the conversation as to what destruction looks like. If we want to be honest, those four years of rebellions post the, the murder, the poignant, but not the only reason, but the poignant murder of MLK, a lot of cities, I'm from Trenton. Trenton had a rebellion and Trenton never recovered from the rebellion. Newark almost didn't recover from the rebellion. Mm. I mean, Roz Baraka probably has the largest economic transformation, but it literally took several steps and different leaders on both a congressional and a local level for there to really feel like this renaissance of a community that was almost gone. But I mean, from Camden to Newark to Trenton, you're talking about these highly densely populated black areas where there was a concentration of labor, concentration of steel industry, and literally wiped out because of rebellion. This is important to tell people because it allows people to understand the environment of their communities beyond just plight. There was actually a pride. When I found out what happened in Trenton growing up there, Mm. there was actually a pride of why city looks the way it does because people said fuck this shit that is not how we talk about baltimore that's not how we talk about Detroit or watts or compton we make it seem like these individuals don't care about their communities which then in 2020 to use words like looting because rioters loot but rebellious people uprise and base things off of humanity and priorities. So it's not right. that we don't care about our community, but it is to make a statement that there right. are things more important <laughs> than this community, yeah. right? Right. And even and even when so, people just hear yeah. community in neighborhoods, they just they just sort of think, oh, like my neighborhood in, in whatever suburb is, is my community, da 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 da. But like, I want to sort of trace what you said about the looting of black bodies is essential to, to slavery. That's sort of what it is, labor and all. And that. Segregation is looting as well. It's looting of black tax dollars. Segregated neighborhoods are involuntary communities, right? They're pushed and concentrated into these neighborhoods and redlined from where the green lines are, the, the suburbs and the non-socially engineered ghettos. So a rebellion and breaking shit and burning shit, there is not a lot of black ownership in the first place because they, to an extent, there's community built on top just sort of socially, but like materially, a lot of black folks in these neighborhoods don't feel like this is our neighborhood. We didn't choose to be in this sort of cramped, dilapidated place. So there's, there's an expression in that as well. Um, that I think is important when people say, well, how could you burn your own? Da, 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 da. You know, there's a, a sort of a logic about how folks don't think this is their, their neighborhood in the first place. They didn't choose this segregation. They were put there. So, you know, I just want to tie that logic into sort of what you said. And I'm not going to let people off the hook that even though they're not necessarily even descendants of people that lynched anybody or even individuals that own people, the kernel, and I literally have like, I am that much of a, but I use it when I'm teaching my students, the quote that you used about the Kerner commission, again, remind you, majority white people, I think there's something said, majority white people, majority white men, but all of them inconclusively were able to say not just that it's because of segregation and racial disparity they literally said every white person benefits from the ghetto and that is a heart like when you see some shit like that (laughs) that's like when people are like oh i'm not racist it's like are you recognizing that racism is not about hooded sheets in fact that is the red herring of race. Can we talk about that? Yo, go it's, in. Go like, ahead. It's not about hooded sheets. They literally, as white people, were able to say, we have investigated all of these cities, and the reality is, it's not just because it's unfair, even though that would be enough for an uprising. It is the fact that white life is not just gaining benefits compared to black life. It's that white life needs the ghetto. You need to right. have exactly. a segregated community. You need to have a dilapidated community for you to benefit from whiteness because the police is only there to make sure that you can remain white and exactly. that you stay away from the ghetto. So when exactly. somebody says law and order, which we know is code, whether it's Nixon, whether it's Slave Master, whether it's Trump, it is to let white people know that people are coming to get you because it's always been the fear of whiteness that black people were gonna rebel and do the ultimate rebellion, which is no motherfuckers, right? For For the big payback. And we just need to name it because that fear, it's what's driving soccer moms and Karens and Beckys to fucking call and say and announce to people, I'm going to tell the cops that you're trying to kill me. If we don't name it, then we're going to have these stupid ass solidarity statements that don't even know why you need to protect our life. 
You need to protect our life because the simple things like going to the bodega or walking through the park could be the last time we walk. Purely because of white fear that gets signaled by these dog whistles that many white people don't even know that they're wired to feel this way. But even on their best intentions, they may not have that one Keisha, that one Tyrone that they fuck with. They may even have a black boyfriend or girlfriend and a black child. But that is an individual transaction relationship. That is not transferred to the larger visualization of black life, period, matters. And fuck the ghetto. There's if, no isn't way. it like ju- isn't that almost like just as dangerous if not more because it's like why well, I, I have a black boyfriend or girlfriend how could I be racist which means then you don't do any work in actually being anti-racist which means well, we, gotta wait for yeah. we gotta wait for people to fuck people to be like you know what and, and to be clear it's not just in it, shout out to my black male counterparts but sometimes they will not say shit about black women for sure until they say, uh, you know, I look at my wife and my daughter and I'm like, what would right, happen? Right. We gotta wait for you to procreate, motherfucker, for you to give a fuck about Brianna Taylor? That makes right. no fucking sense. But again, without changing people overnight, to your point, uh, Mike, we have to call it and say, actually, this is worse. That you actually have to experience a friendship or affinity with Black life before you move. That's crazy. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, just if I just wanted to double down on your point, I think when people, a lot of white people with, with black squares on social and that da, 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 I think that it's just sort of a misconception of what racism is. And, you know, it's people just boil racism down to like good people, evil people and feelings. That's what they think racism is. It's just a sort of a racism. It lives in the hearts and minds of evil individuals. And that is the extent of, of what it is. You're exactly, inherently right? good or bad. Exactly. Right. So so that completely obscures what racism is in terms of a political, social, and social, a uh, political, political, legal, and, and social is, uh, is this your, it's, is this, is this the, it's not black versus white, it's everyone versus racist kind of? Yeah, exactly, right? So, you know, I don't know if you saw this iffy, but far been, uh, you know, we saw this, this sort of post of, it's not black versus white, it's everyone versus racists. Not racism, racists. Did you see that at all? No. So, right, but I think it, I think it's... I'm black, those motherfuckers from mine. Right, right. But I think it's a really important illustration. You know, this is really how people think about this stuff. So we can find the murderer of George Floyd and we can find, you know, what's in uh, Cooper and, and the, and if we go out and we, if we whack them all with them or Gucci, that's really all that matters here. Rather than racism being a much larger institutional thing that curves the agency of individuals. And it, it is a system that produces racist behavior. Racism doesn't live in people. Everybody can do racist things, right? I mean, Ibram talks about this and Farb's going on his journey through Stamped, you know, his book before how to be an anti-racist. But, you know, racist ideas can, you know, a lot of people can consume them. Ibram talked about a lot of his book tours, like I, you know, not internalized racism, like people think about it, like self-hatred or something, but you can deploy racist ideas and those double standards to other black people, to each other, right? Like poor black people or black women and, and those types of things. And, I, you know, I just want to, to your point, if you made me think of Kate Mann, she has a book called The Logic of Misogyny. And I think we need a book called The Logic of Racism. It does exist, actually. It's called Racecraft by Barbara Fields. But basically the way that the logic of misogyny defines misogyny as rather than something men do, it's something women face. It is a social thing that doesn't live in individuals. It is a more of a systemic and societal wide thing that women face rather than a psychological trait that exists within men. Those individuals need to be held accountable, but it is so much larger and you're sort of missing, you know, looking at the tree in the forest or whatever that phrase is. But the only thing I can add to that is like, while I appreciate the two books that you raised, sorry, I'm a fucking black woman. So I don't need just one of those books. I would need <laughs> a pal misogynist in this system. Word. Nobody's going to be free till black women and black queer folk are free, period. And it's just right. an understanding of equity. There is the, the majority of even the black struggle in society is still very much from a male lens, right? So we Definitely. all yeah. grew up learning about black, on Black History Month about black people being slaves. We did not learn about black women and girls being raped. We did not, and even men who were raped because rape is genderized. That is also adds to why we can't talk about men who've been violated, period, in our societies because we don't talk mm. about what that actually is a thing and that has happened. And especially in the black experience, the only way that you can have a black population is through manufacturing them you have to create it 
because we actually stopped slavery as a transport part of commerce, but we still legalized slavery as an actual act of, of service in this country. But what do you do when you can't ship in any more Negroes? You make them. And the only way you can make them is two ways, raping the women and the girls that are there or using the men, and it is using, having them forcefully be in situations with women. Also rape. So mm -hmm. for me, it is frustrating to me that even with Title IX, that Black women to this day are literally the only community that cannot raise in the court, that they are not only discriminated against because they're women, but because they're a Black woman. We have not had a successful case that has allowed wow. us to argue that. So I just want to uplift that. Like, I hear what you're saying. I think Ibram is a G I think there's a lot of things I agree with. I always push back. And I think that's always up for debate about whether Black people can um, be racist towards other people. I do believe internalized racism is absolutely something that happens and how we exhibit it towards an intra-community situation is so much more complicated than putting like a label on it. But for me, the root of racism is power. So part of the reason why we don't have this discussion or the discussion makes people think about this boogeyman or this monster that they're not, and they always want to distance themselves from it is because we're just not defining it in mass as to what it is. Racism as a science is not a real science. It was created to establish power. So you are white and you are Caucasian and therefore you get power, period. That's racist. That's just fucking racist. You don't have to do nothing to gain that power, right? And right. I can say to you, fuck you. I don't like the way your skin looks. I don't like the way your hair looks. But I don't take away power from you when that happens. I've also never hung you because of your hair or your skin color. You've never had to risk your job because your hair didn't kink a certain way. Like that to me is the everyday, to Mike's point, it is actually bigger then we're talking about it. Racism happens every goddamn day. Every white person that I've met has experienced at least one racist act that they've done, whether they knew it or not. And it doesn't make them a monster. It makes them white. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And that goes to sort of racism invented race. Race is just a representation of power. It doesn't actually exist. It's the act of racism that draws a distinction and a cleavage inside of a society that says, I'm calling you white people. I'm calling you black people. And all of the characteristics that I would attach to the notion or the ideology of race is to justify my racism, you know, so it's sort of a flipping or a reverse, you know, which I got from Barbara Fields. But, you know, I, I totally agree. I want to go a little micro for a second, and this might be a, a shorter conversation, but just attaching to that power, our idiot in chief. Do we think he's literally just plagiarizing the greatest hits of racist speeches right now into his tweets? Like, is it, it has to be deliberate, right? Like his team's literally just going back in time. Oh, I mean, I think there's some, I, I forget the type of science it is, but the people who do the fact checking that just like compare old speeches and to each other, mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. been founded that he's used key phrases. Right, um, right. Are supreme supremacists in this country on purpose because that's how strong dog whistle is. Dog whistle politics is the using of terms and images to evoke thoughts with very little thought processes to the public, right? So you don't have to have that many words. He, the other day he tweeted law and order in caps. Like he is so convinced that people are, the one thing I know about Trump is Trump, the one thing I appreciate about Trump is Trump is not confused about how racist our society is. And he's not confused at how uh, beneficial propaganda is to any agenda. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't have to, and the Republicans have mastered for the last 20 years, not getting too deep into issues, but to stay on values. So they have a whole list of values that have a whole bunch of bullet points rather than like <laughs> actual like process. They don't give a fuck about the shit that the Dems give a fuck about. They give a fuck about how do we stay in power? And again, it ties back to our last conversation. They don't stay in, in power when we start talking about equity and equality. They don't stay in power when we start talking about equal distribution of resources and land. Even our favorite billionaires don't stay in power when we start talking about what it would look like to have just equal, truthful information. We're not even talking about broadband access. We're just talking about like truthful information, which is why Zuckerberg is somebody that we're all conflicted with because here he has created this platform that everybody feels like they can't get away from and several platforms, if you include IG and WhatsApp. And yet he is compromising with 
a fucking fascist. And we allow him to do that. Flip this shit on his head. Let a black person even say that they're talking about being a communist and that motherfucker would be profiled for the rest of their lives. Zuckerberg is having real conversations on the phone with this guy who wants to be a dictator and they can do it. Why? Because whiteness and money. That's it. There's nothing stopping them from doing it. So I think that being that he has managed to control information, he has managed to control media, he doesn't have to be smart. He just has to be obedient. And they have so many people that have been waiting for the right. He is literally the Republican Messiah. They have been waiting for the right person that can manipulate everything from scripture to, you know. He delivers for them. He delivers everything. They just appointed their 197th and maybe more today, but yesterday, just shy of 200 federal judges. We don't talk enough about that, but that is literally the golden ticket. He will literally be considered the most successful Republican president off of that alone. That to me is why his messaging doesn't have to be that deep. But yes, his messaging is intentionally racist, but more than that, it's intentionally propagandized, if you will, to signal a certain type of order that has people that are vulnerable, poor, but also white and scared to feel like we need to protect the little bit of interest that we have. He doesn't even have to, he doesn't have to use the words verbatim, but this playbook is, you know, I don't know, I think it came to prominence really with, you talking about Barry Goldwater, but ultimately Nixon who used it to win in the Southern strategy, but the law and order platform, no matter what the phrasing you use, in its core, it is exactly, you know, what if he uh, described, it is sort of this protection of whiteness, um, which means the control and the movement of blackness and suppression of blackness. So, and the means to do that is obviously police and quote unquote riot gear and, and those kinds of things. Here's what I'm seeing. Like there's rebellions right now. It's not as bad as the 60s, but it was really the way that it really hit the country in a tidal wave in the 60s and Nixon's riding the law and order platform. That was the beginning of the flip of the parties, right? Where the sort of conservative um, weight in the country moved from being Dixiecrats over, and it took a while, a couple of years, to move over to the Republican Party, to the GOP. That mobilizing force is that powerful that it moved, it switched the parties, which is something completely uh, hasn't happened in history. So that is the winning ticket, and that is something that is always going to, it's bone deep, it's going to mobilize a particular population in this country. Like, I don't think Kevin Cruz, the Twitter historian that he's always, he whatever, dunking on people, I thought like, oh, is the rebellions hurting us in that way that it shores up law and order politics and white evangelical, you know, and, and sort of with a religious tint, the way that he used it. Is this going to help Trump in the way that he's lost with COVID stuff? Kevin Cruz said no, because he's an incumbent rather than being the new party coming in. But I'm really worried that this is hurting sort of the way COVID is hurting him this big rebellion stuff is helping him in a way that he can frame it in a law and order way to really mobilize people for further turnout that maybe there was already going to be. I think it's too soon to say COVID is hurting him. We are five months away and he is rushing to open up. We are dealing with the realities of people that are sick and desperate. That right, is yeah. what we're dealing with. People have lost loved ones. People have lost their jobs. And People need to find ways for people that don't necessarily have the type of skills that work in the digital platform and yet are just shy of essential, which are at this point, however many millions of individuals that have filed for unemployment. Trump can actually run. I'm just putting on my political strategy hat. Trump is actually going to run as the person that fought against an epidemic and opened up a country. And that is not a hot, that is not an easy thing to not only like get around, but he can literally fall on the empathy of individuals that are like, you know, he couldn't prevent an epidemic from coming here. Sure, there are going to be people that are going to hold him accountable for the response rate. And that it's going to be interesting to see how the response uh, talking points not only are created, but can they hold up till November to be enough right. for people to be like, I need to have a different type of Trump. Now, what will be interesting in November is that's also when it's predicted to be another wave because it's a cold season of COVID. Right. COVID. So yeah. there's so much like 
fucking destruction that's happening with people relocating and what does that mean for people getting their voting together? What does that mean when he's trying to defund USPS? He is creating all these little, but not little, mini wars, right? Little fires everywhere, if you will, that I think are going to make it again insurmountable to what was already pre-COVID. We already had voter suppression. We already had Russians. Like we already had things that were fucking up voting. Trump, again, is the Republican messiah. He is literally the golden ticket. And again, tying it back to our original discussion this morning, this is why deep down in my bones, I needed people to know today was a voting day. Because if people don't start getting in the practice of feeling like, I don't even like terms like your life depends on it or people died for your right to vote. People are dying. Yeah, yeah, fuck that. Yeah, right. Like to me, it's enough to like put our present tragedies as the reason why we go to the ballot. But I don't think it's a shoe in with the master, a country that has been able to sustain this many lies and a Congress that has not used the 25th Amendment, which I'm going to keep saying was the biggest disaster of this congressional body. They are <laughs> really going to let this motherfucker coast with lies to the polls. Yeah. And whether we like it or not, he is a liar, but he is also a genuine liar. He actually right. to the work whatever his plans are, he may not fuck with your plan, but he definitely has delivered on all the Republican, like, everything deliverable. Right. I was just, I'm sorry, one last, just, yeah, yeah, finish up, Ed. Uh, a small devil's advocate pushback. I feel you on the, on the COVID thing, but I think with the COVID thing, I think it's the economy bottoming out. Historically, this is with Bush and, and Obama. And I, and I argue that if it wasn't for this as a part of it, Obama wouldn't have been elected, but incumbent administrations that suffer huge, huge recessions and or depressions, um, it is and cause this like the issue the issue that we have is not only did he not cause this the economy whether i like it or not was also yeah. records before covid happened so he's going to take both ownership for the economy that yes he got from a baton from obama but like the saying goes you own your economy as the president he owns right. So he cannot be blamed. Like, I actually have to say that there is enough of a justification to say that he did not bring in COVID. So he actually think that he owns, and to to your point, he owns a recession, but it is up to the Democrats and the strategists to tie his response to the recession. It can't be that... Trump created the recession because that would actually what, be what Bush didn't create the recession. It was not Bush's administration that it was years and years of policy from the Reagan era that created the housing bubble that was that happened while Bush was in office. But yet Bush is tied to it as if he did create it. So I think even if, if you could prove that so-and-so caused it or not, I think that it's inextricably tied to their administration in a way that is detrimental. We know that it's tied, but first of all, voters with Bush at the Bush era are completely different than the voters we're dealing right now. Yeah. It's almost apples to, like we are. We have dealt with a completely type, different type of messaging, different type of access to social media. We didn't even have internet back then. Like there are so many things or internet that was accessible to everyday people. There's so many things that are just so different about even the colluding of information at this point. And the stock market's still zooming. And in a lot of people's minds, even though it doesn't help them, that to them still equates in a positive manner. It's obviously this disassociation, but it is what it is. I want um, what you're saying. I just don't think yeah. I'm here. And I think people, for people that haven't worked behind the scenes on like civic engagement organizing, we don't have enough time to like have the type of message. We need to be testing messaging now. We need to be doing models right now. We need to be reaching people completely differently right now. We cannot have these mm-hmm. Pollyanna, United States for all type bullshit. You actually got to go to the rising demographics, which include Latino communities that are the most eligible, the largest population of eligible voters, but low, low, low turnout. There should Super be a low. completely different type of outreach that that's backdoors. We should have Asian American outreach as the highest rising group of individuals that are voting. We need to have differentiated strategic messaging that actually hits different communities and do it unapologetically and not give a fuck. Call this motherfucker out. Call him a motherfucker. Do shit that actually gets people riled up to be like, I actually by any means necessary need to get this motherfucker out. Anything in between, anything that's going to try to reason with a Kellyanne Conway or Fox News is just, mm. it, that is, inc- you you got to come in there like a fucking brute. And I mm-hmm. hate that we're so traditional and we're so proper and we're so prim with this shit that we'd rather be respectable than right. We'd rather be respectable than win. And Republicans only give a fuck about one thing, win. Win and wealth. Mm-hmm. That's it. 
and, so and wealth the, through racism. Go ahead. Where, where, where I was about to go is we were having a thought exercise the other day and talking about like charter cities, charter communities. Like there's all these people thinking outside of the box of like what do new living environments look like. And right after we had that conversation, we saw you tweet something about we just have to put everything on the table and these are different things. And we posted something about it. It was something around like an Africa diaspora concept. And obviously you weren't saying, I'm saying to do this, but more of just like, we've got to think about all the different things. Cause kind of to your point, even with having like the craziest shit of our lifetime happen, there's no guarantee this guy is losing right now. Mm-hmm. So I kind of wanted to just dive a little bit deeper into that concept of like what it would mean for people to move. And obviously not everyone can necessarily move. There's a lot of complications within that. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you could touch upon that a little bit. Well, you know what happened when, um, when COVID was starting to spread in Europe and especially in Italy? You know what they did? The ones that could, they started traveling to the Caribbean. So I say all this to say that even in the short term, when it comes to the concept of safety, that white communities actively (laughs) seek safety. Even here in New York City, there was a New York Times article that basically talked about like the second white flight, right? People left New York City because when it started messaging that A, we were a hotspot, but also that black and brown communities were the ones that were basically the containers and the whatever of COVID, which actually is more connected to our overpopulation of being essential workers and on the front lines in hospitals. But it was, again, another coding that has to do with contamination and has to do with all this eugenics bullshit that's racist and filled with a whole bunch of loaded context. Either way, it doesn't stop. We could have stopped people at the border like, whoa, 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 you're being racist. Go back, go back to your home, say hi to your neighbor, clap at seven o'clock for your essential workers. Them motherfuckers left, okay? So I find it interesting that the conversation about black safety is denied to us. Whether it's police, whether it's land, whether it's in the jail system, whether it's in housing systems, safety is just not something that we can prioritize. So the tweet that I put out there was literally to be like, we can negotiate what services look like in the many waves of COVID that I predict there is no going back to pre-COVID. We are in COVID, COVID, COVID. But I want us to also give ourselves the advantage and not cheapen our version of liberation or liberty as a whole to start envisioning what safety where boundaries and lines are not limiting to us, what would it look like for us to just be safe? And what territory would allow us to be safe? This is not about perfect liberation as much as can we start being strategic? I mean, I'm a strategist, so I'm, it was an actual, and I think y'all took it as such too. It was a practical ass question. I didn't tell people what land. I didn't say where. I said, the first question is, do we deserve safety? The second one is, what would it look like? And the third one is, can America hold that? And if it's not America, where the fuck would it be? Right? I just think that for me, that exercise allows me to feel hopeful and allows me to have options as a woman who wants to have a family and wants to raise children and all those things, but also recognizes that for me, this is just my choice or my perspective right now, it would be absolutely irresponsible for me to bring a child into this society. That is just the way I feel in, in my heart. I cannot guarantee safety to my child. And I would also have to participate in lying to my child and saying stupid shit like, but the police are safe and they're here to protect you. Fuck that shit. I'm not going to participate in the lie of America. So I think that we have to start envisioning what it looks like to still have issues and problems, but in a place where like gun safety looks a little different or policing looks a little different and food and access and social nets look different. And I don't think that America allows us, America fatigues us too much to actually have that strategy conversation from beginning to Z, right? It allows us to maybe have Wakanda moments and Black joy moments, which mind you, other non-Black people also benefit from our joy, right? So it allows us to have these moments of joy because it's fun for everybody. But when it comes to us actually talking about, yo, we're exhausted with America, America doesn't like that conversation. Yeah, I could hear Jim yelling in our ears the entire time being like, fuck this place, I'm bringing my kid back to Haiti right now. And we we had this conversation a little bit too when the versus battle happened with Beanie Man and Bounty Killer and the cops showed up in the middle of it which was wild. And Jim was like, can you imagine if that was in America, how different that situation could have been? Immediately different. But that cop didn't look at him as like some other dangerous person. It was just a person. 
Correct. And it's like, that's what you're saying is like in this thought experiment, where can we actually go and raise our family and feel actually safe when someone pulls a gun or has a gun as a police officer, whether that country has it or not, and it not be a thing that they subconsciously think that this person is predisposed to be someone that they're not. And let me, let me say this, anti-blackness is a thing everywhere, even in black nations, right? Because colonialism is a thing everywhere. So it's not that, again, it's conceivable that the cops came there, not because people were having joy, but the cops came there because they've also been primed that people who are making loud noise, even if it's our kind, need to be policed. That is a learned behavior. We could have several different responses to joy and noise, but they still came there as law and order. So we have colonialistic ways of doing things. But yes, to your point, Mike, there is at least a little bit of a safety in knowing that this person can have 99 reasons to fuck with me. The likelihood that my race is one of them is slimmer than here in the United States. That doesn't mean that there isn't bias. That doesn't mean that there aren't power dynamics that are also at play. I think Jim would also speak to, I mean, I've spent quite a bit of time in Haiti doing Haiti recovery. There are a lot of <laughs> isms there based on colorism and power and which small numbers of family have benefited, families, excuse me, have benefited from various forms of colonialism and, and takeovers that force- Doc. Right. Well, yes. And so I think that like there are several examples of that. Um, but just like James Baldwin had stated, you know, in several different versions of his writings that fr he both loved France and he hated France. But the one thing he said about France was that France is one of the most racist locations that he's gone to. But the only difference is he knows that at the end of a confrontation, he's not going to be killed by a gun. And I think that that is something that gave him peace of mind that I am okay with you not fucking with me because of my skin. I'm not okay with you taking my life because of my skin. And that is why I want us to imagine life outside of the United States. Well, I think we've got to kind of wrap it up with that. But before we go, is there anything you can share with us? I, I know you were chatting a little bit offline about there's some, some research that you've been doing around COVID that you're going to be sharing online. Where should we be on the lookout for that? Yeah, very quickly, in the beginning part of this whole experiment that we've gone through with COVID. As you all know, I'm, I'm still in New York City and I was experiencing different changes in my body that um, I knew were just not normal. And I called a city MD just to let them know, hey, I think I'm experiencing things that are not normal. And the immediate response was, you know, we're not testing you, right? And that response kind of took me aback. It's not the first time I've experienced discrimination in New York City's healthcare system. And uh, what resulted from that was literally taking my experience, and this was kind of like at the beginning parts when we were starting to talk more about the disparity in especially Black communities and in New York City, also Brown communities. And I want to uplift the Bronx, right? Because the Bronx is dealing with quite a big healthcare crisis. But we were just starting to get messaging on that. Something that I think Black people already knew was going to hit them really, really hard. And I took it really hard that nobody was going to give a fuck about my life. I have a mom who's a nurse in her 60s, so I also knew what it was like to have various contacts with this epidemic. And so COVID While Black was created to see and just gather other stories that otherwise would be lost, um, recognizing that the sad thing about the way it kills people is that it's very lonely, right? There's like this lonely reality that happens. And whether it's you're lonely because you can't visit a loved one or you yourself are experiencing quarantine, I wanted to make sure that Black life wasn't limited to statistics, that we weren't just talking about us as to how many more of us are likely to get it versus other communities. But I also recognized that in some ways we needed a time capsule for people that do either transition or people that are going through hardships at this time. So we launched two waves of COVID While Black. We started with COVID While Black and actually did some great work in partnership with some of our Black comrades in the UK. So that was also cool to kind of hear some of the similarities and the invisibility of our pain and our plight, but the oversaturation of even stories that were non-Black stories, right, in the media about what was going on. And then we partnered with an organization called the National Black Justice Coalition, the only civil rights LGBTQ Black organization that exists. And we relaunched the COVID While Black and Queer 
to make sure that we were also getting stories that were very much missing in the marginalization, not only within the COVID context, but in our community as a whole. So what we are hoping for is that on Juneteenth, June 19th, we are going to be releasing the final report. We're excited about the visuals that are going to accompany it, and we will be announcing some what we call Black Policy Lab experiences, which allow people to be a part of the both discussion, but also the policymaking aspect as to how do we respond to this. So yeah, it was not planned in my 2020 to do this. Um, as you all know, I launched a new company in, in January called Pink Cornrows. The Black Policy Lab is a project that we've been working on for years, but now we just are honored and humbled at how many stories we've been able to capture. We do have some individuals that unfortunately are not here anymore, but it's even more humbling to know that we've captured their lives and their stories. So that I think is worthy enough of a project and an experience. Can you tell the listeners what Juneteenth is? June 19th. It's a Friday. Oh, what it is? Yeah, because I don't know if everybody knows. Oh, I think in general, most people know that Juneteenth is a day where we eat chicken and watermelon and... (laughs) Right. No, I'm just kidding. Please. <laughs> um, although chicken and watermelon is delicious and every fucking It's delicious. Food. It's objectively delicious. It's delicious so fuck and that. Watermelon is 98% water, damn it. So give me my watermelon. No, Juneteenth is the celebration of the actual liberation of the majority or of, of segments of Black populations that were not immediately freed when the Emancipation Proclamation was declared. Some of it was, yes, due to racist white individuals that did not want to let go of their slaves. Some of it was also because, you know, we have the internet and <laughs> and we have mail. <laughs> and motherfuckers had to get on horses and let people know <laughs> people were free. So like there's, you know, I'm a historian, I'm a professor by nature, but I'm not saying it's funny because I'll be pissed as fuck. Like, you mean, damn it. Like I would have been pissed as hell. But Juneteenth is an opportunity that, that allows for black people to celebrate and remember both the pain and the actual liberation of our community. So it's, it's probably one of the blackest holidays out there. And so we want to make sure that we are, but we also recognize that Juneteenth is within the month of Again, Pride Month. So part of the reason why we're selecting Juneteenth is because we want that in the future when we say that we're doing a Black study, it is inclusive of the multiple intersectionalities that we exist in. Unfortunately, we're still at a point where we still have to say Black and queer. But what I appreciate is that the addition of queer allowed for more surveys and more insights from people that maybe thought that by saying Black, it didn't speak to them, which is kind of troubling. And it allow, it reminds us that we still have some work to do, even within the Black community, as an in inclusion of our brothers and sisters and siblings and non-gender conforming folks and, and everyone along the spectrum. Word. Big facts. Well, Ify... Always a pleasure having you. Everyone, don't be an ally. Get your shit. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see you all next week.